You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got uh, Paul Hawken on the show today. Paul's a, an environmentalist, entrepreneur, economist, author, activist. Uh, Paul's the editor, author of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, which came out recently. Uh, he's also had a New York Times bestseller, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever to uh, propose to reverse global warming. He's a co-founder of Project Drawdown. Uh, he has a book, another book, uh, The Ecology of Commerce, pointing towards a sustainable global economy, as well as a number of other books. Uh, we could go on and on. Uh, another thing that Paul did was a, a TV show that was called Growing a Business, a 17-part PBS series on the challenges of starting a socially responsible company. Um, and uh, Paul's had a hand in uh, opening Erewhon, which is a grocery store, which uh, is close to my house. I know one location. Back in 1967, Paul was uh, part of that um, back, I believe, on the East Coast. And now it's it's gone, um, gotten quite a bit bigger particularly out here in L.A. Uh, and one of the fascinating pieces of, Paul, your story is going back and working with Martin Luther King Jr. to prepare for the marches in Selma and Montgomery. So um, without further ado, um, Paul, welcome to the program. Matt, thank you very much. I uh, look forward to our conversation. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your journey and what brought you here. Obviously, a fascinating journey going back uh, to the year of my birth, uh, 58 years ago in 1965, um, you working with Martin Luther King Jr. What, what kind of got you on that path? Uh, well, I grew up in <clears throat> Berkeley, California, which was at that time only one of three communist cities in the United States. I joke about Cambridge, Madison, and Berkeley, you know, but it was so uh, leftist and you know radical, which I loved. And um, so, to me, it's sort of like if you're, you know, like a fish in water, you know, you don't know what water is, you know, and. And same with me growing up in Berkeley, I just thought everybody cared about social justice, you know, and uh, was against political corruption. And, you know, so it was pretty natural for me to go down there. I saw footage, you know, of what was going on on the uh, Edmund Pettibus Bridge, you know, the kids being beaten and truncheoned and, you know, German shepherds and all that sort of stuff. So. I'd only been involved with civil rights up here in California, and so I got in a car and went down there and played a very minor role in terms of <clears throat> registering the press, you know, as a media coordinator, but it was simply uh, uh, an opportunity to be a, a fly on a wall of an extraordinary event, really, and extraordinary people. Well, that is uh, an amazing uh, journey to start at that place as a young person. Uh, kind of uh, at the feet of masters in terms of uh, working and organizing and social justice and and uh, starting a movement. So how does that inform your work in the in the environmental movement? Well, there's no difference. Uh, environmental justice, social justice are the same thing. And the, the, the degradation, the loss of uh, of uh, the biosphere, 
you know, whether it's oceans or land or rivers or water, uh, farmland, uh, pollinators, uh, etc., is all due to uh, basically unjust economic practices, you know, which are extractive, which basically are based on taking, 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 taking. And we've taken a lot and the results show uh, so to me, moving into the environment was natural. Now, that being said, growing up, I grew up on a farm uh, and in part with my grandfather. And uh, I was watching California basically be destroyed, the, the San Joaquin, Sacramento Valley. You know, we'd drive by a farmhouse that had been there for, you know, three generations and, or more. And then a year later, uh, all the big oaks were gone, shading the house, you know, and there'd be uh, basically a strip mall, you know, with a gas station and a fast food outlet, and, you know. So I grew up watching California being destroyed. Uh, and so that was there with me all the time. And I grew up in the Sierra Club and, you know, as a little kid, rock climbing and all that, scrambling around Yosemite. Um, so it was very painful to watch California be destroyed by development. So then, uh, fast forward a bit through that, uh, what, uh, what took you to, uh, starting Erewhon and, and building that out? Well, Erewhon was not a grocery store, but thank you for bringing it out. <laughs> um, what happened was that I had asthma from six months old and the earliest reported case of asthma in San Mateo County. And I was rushed to the hospital for the first year of my life when I turned blue and they put me in an oxygen tent. Finally, they strapped me down for six weeks in an oxygen tent uh, and, uh, and forbid my parents to see, to visit, because I got too, you know, so excited about that in an oxygen tent. And I, so I had asthma all my life and the only palliative that was offered was uh, uh ephedrine, which is a drug, uh, ephedra, which was banned in diet supplements in 2004, but that was my drug of choice by prescription, and it allowed me to breathe. And when I was uh, 18, 19, I read a book, and uh, it said, if you're sick, it's your fault, and it really pissed me off. <laughs> I said, I had it from six months. It you know, wasn't my fault. But what the book was trying to say is it's your responsibility. In other words, don't play victim. And that made sense to me. And so I went on a food fast uh, that the book prescribed, which is just uh, 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 eating brown rice, chewing it to the to till it was drool in your mouth <laughs> and 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 drinking tea and i did that for uh uh 10 days but on the eighth day i could breathe i could feel the air at the bottom of my lungs and i stopped taking my medicine and it was revelatory and and way i was just over the top delighted at the same time i was a little pissed off because i've been involved with the medical establishment and you know for all those years and this was so simple and i was incredulous in a way and so what happened is i was eating then by then rice and vegetables and i kept adding matter kept adding one thing <clears throat> a hamburger a milkshake a coca-cola a beer apple juice uh a, you know whatever and i could actually feel then 
the change in my physiology from that one food, which you can't eat, you can't detect that when you're eating the common American diet, eating French fries and ketchup and this and that and all the things. And you can't distinguish which food is having which impact on you. And after I did that for almost a year, I didn't go to the supermarket again. I went to farmer's markets and I went to, you know, ethnic stores, you know, and <clears throat> the Quaker Mill, you know, in Chinatown, Japantown, and Lebanese Town and to do my shopping on Saturday. And I thought, you know, since I grew up on a farm and we used to have a farm stand and we bought from them, that there should be a farm stand in the city. There should be a place in the city where you can go get real food that was organically grown, that was fresh, uh, <clears throat> there was didn't have an ingredient list that you had to translate, uh, if ingredient list at all. Uh, and that's how Erwan started. And it grew into, we had uh, a rail car, we had a warehouse, a uh, five-story warehouse in, in South Boston. We had a store in LA, we had a store in Boston. Uh, we had uh, farms, or, uh, we had 35,000 acres contracted to us from farmers all over the country. We had 3,000 wholesale accounts. Uh, so it was the beginning of the organic food movement in the United States. Not to say that there were other companies too, Matt, of course there were, but uh, for us, that was what that's what I did. And it eventually was sold and sold again and to people who started, uh, not started, but created the Erwan stores in L.A. And now I think they have one in New York. Well, it's an amazing story. And I think uh, it all relates to your personal journey, but also relates to kind of where we're at as a planet. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in, in a number of your books that I've read is the the problems of the agro business and um and the f and all this fake food this processed food that we get is a big part of of our ecological problem um and as you describe it it's also part of our health problem so uh, maybe you could talk about some of those things and how how do we stop uh this process of our those agro businesses feeding uh, our fellow citizens all this junk, which is just terrible for their health and it's terrible for the planet. The food system, which is the makers, the farmers, the producers, is the single greatest cause of global warming and it's the single greatest cause of human disease. That is the story. And uh, you parse it and get down into the details, which I would love to do. Uh, and to me, food companies, and I'll say this brazenly, like Pepsi and other ultra-processed food companies are committing a crime against humanity by spending $5 billion a year convincing our children to eat sugar, soft drinks, and junk food. Well, I'll get get an amen on that one. I mean, I believe that the food companies are just poisoning us in so many different ways. They've yeah. created this uh, torrent of diabetes and diabetics in the United States. The cost alone, I read a few years ago, was $330 billion and climbing. And we're going to have, I can't remember, tens of millions of new diabetics because of... Um, you know, the terrible diet that uh, gets fed to Americans. Yeah, 73% of our food is ultra-processed food. 
73%. And um, human beings weren't designed for ultra-processed food. <laughs> and uh, it, it, the numbers are worse. You know, we have a $4 trillion so-called healthcare industry. It's not. It's a sick care industry. And it feeds itself. And you'll have diseases, and you'll go to a doctor, and she, he will prescribe something. It's just medicine. But it doesn't go back upstream to cause. And 150,000 Americans every year have part of their leg or ankle cut off because of diabetes, sawed off. And that's downstream. Upstream are these huge companies, you know, with advertising budgets and you know, featuring Beyonce and whatever, convincing very impressionable young children that if they eat or drink, you know, Mountain Dew, somehow they're going to have a better life. And that's the opposite. Yeah, it's it's really unconscionable. It's, um, you know, the type as a lawyer, we would look at a conscious disregard of the rights and safety of others is a basis for punitive damages. It's punishment. It's and that is what these companies are doing. They are consciously disregarding the rights and safety of the consumers and feeding them things that are essentially like poison. Gosh, I'd never heard that legal term before. I love it. Uh, let's do a lawsuit. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> you can you can be the plaintiff. I'll I'll be I'll be the attorney. Okay. I'll get a thousand children to be the plaintiffs. That's what we. That should be the plaintiffs. You know. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, clearly, food. Our food problems are the source of so many problems in our society. Obviously, as you just said, the health problems are just gargantuan. And uh, if we were really serious about having a healthy society, we would go at food first and say, hey, we want to clean up our food source and make everything that we're eating organic, period. We have to go backwards to the farm. And actually, agriculture is industrialized. Uh, it's chemical-based. If people had any idea what actually happens on commodity farms, they would be repulsed. Uh, they basically do not feed the soil. Uh, they feed the plant chemicals, and the plants don't need to really go down very deep into the soil because the macronutrients are right there. Uh, and they grow, but they grow in a very unhealthy way. They grow too quickly. Uh, they look very green from the nitrogen, of course, uh, but they're subject then to infestation. They're like, it looks like a big free buffet to all the insects uh, for you know tens of thousands of acres, and they. So we use pesticides. Uh, we use neonicotinoids uh, that last five years that kill insects, but also are systemic. They go into the plant. The insects eat them on the plant, die. Birds eat the insects. They have mortality events as well. So <clears throat> that's just the beginning. And what we do know is that soil health relates to plant health, and plant health relates to human and animal health. And unless we are aware uh, that connection, we just are subject to basically going up and down the aisles of our supermarkets and buying what's available. Um, but the, the health of the nation, the health of our children starts with the soil. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Paul Hawken on the program. Uh, we'll be right back in just one minute.
and you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Paul Hawkins, noted author, environmentalist, on the program today. And uh, we were just talking about nutrition as it relates to the agro business. And uh, Paul just kind of wanted to pick it up back there in terms of what are your thoughts on how do we make changes to uh, really make a 180 on agriculture and food in the United States and across the world? Well, there are actually very big companies that are some of the biggest food companies in the world are actually aware of the problem and and are changing over to regenerative agriculture in a very quiet way. They're not bragging. They're not using it as a um, uh, way to make themselves look good. They're actually doing it to create resilience in the food system. The thing about regenerative agriculture as compared to industrial agriculture is that it can withstand uh, greater vagaries of the weather, that is to say heat, cold, uh, too little water, too much water floods uh, than conventional agriculture. So when you move to systems of farming that actually feed the life of the soil, um, and you have cover crops and you don't let the sun see the top of the soil and you have the beneficial uh, pollinators, insects and so forth, when you have those kind of systems where uh, the cover crops are actually uh, also fertilizing the soil in a much better way, um, you're getting a food system that actually can be, as I say, more resilient, can withstand the uh, the vagaries and the ups and downs and disruption of weather, which is here and going to increase as time goes on within the next decades. Um, not This year is not just, it's a tryout for the future. It's just, it's just a hint of what's going to happen. It's not like an anomaly. And I think that's difficult for people to incorporate and integrate and to take in. It's like, you got to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. That was predicted 50 years ago by scientists. And the only difference is that they thought it would happen later than sooner. Otherwise, it's exactly what was predicted by climatologists. So agriculture, in terms of being organic and regenerative, is actually a way for us to ensure that we have a sustainable food supply as opposed to say, well, it's a nice thing to do. It's the best thing to do. It's very you know, idealistic. No, it's the most pragmatic thing that we can do right now uh, in terms of our food system. And it produces healthier food. Uh, uh, for everybody who eats it, you know, and whether it's in animals or whether it's people around the world. And uh, as I said, you know, we have a $4 trillion sick care industry um, and it is if food didn't exist, you know, and doctors don't, aren't trained in nutrition. You know, when I was dealing with my asthma, you had zero hours uh, to become an MD about nutrition, zero. And now I think it's an hour, you have an hour become a physician studying nutrition. And even that nutrition doesn't really take into consideration the whole of the food supply, the whole of the cycle from whence food arises and uh, uh, exists, you know. Um, so it's a very exciting time. I, I'm not trying to be a doomsayer here. I'm just trying to say that the, the, the amount of change that's occurring in agriculture uh, is extraordinary. I hope the food business at some point wakes up and realizes that it should also change too. What about the policies of the Biden administration regarding agriculture? 
have they been effective? Uh, have they moved the needle at all towards uh, getting more farmers to go to regenerative agriculture? They're doing something here. Uh, you know, Bill Sick is the head of the Department of Agriculture, and he's, with all due respect, I think he's a nice guy, but in the, he's in the throes of the uh, chemical uh, industrial agricultural industry, Syngenta, Corteva, Bayer, Monsanto, Cargill. I mean, they control USDA policy. There is a program in the Farm Bill now called Climate Smart Agriculture. They didn't dare call it organic or regenerative and they call it climate smart, whatever that means. And there are things in there that encourage cover crops for sure. And uh, and there, I think there's subsidies or I forget what the where the funding is going towards that. Um, so there is movement, uh, but the there's not movement to move away from industrial agriculture. It's industrial agriculture is seeing that there is some benefit from these things, but it doesn't threaten uh, there are core business, which is uh, synthetic fertilizers, uh, glyphosate, dicamba, paraquat, pesticides, neonics, uh, all the hundreds of different pesticides and herbicides that go onto the farm, onto the land, into our food, uh, are actually completely protected under the new farm bill. So is it going to be up to consumers to just from the demand side say enough is enough, we don't want to eat that garbage anymore? Well, yes, it is. Uh, and that requires uh, what we call food justice, which is the availability of fresh, good, healthy food uh, in our communities everywhere. That's not true. Many, many people in urban environments live in what's called food deserts. Uh, you'd have to go two or three miles to to a store uh, that had healthy food, uh, and and you couldn't afford it. And so there are many organizations now uh, within these food deserts. You know, they're bringing in smaller fresh food farmers markets. You know, and trying to reconnect uh, these urban islands uh, uh, to growers, you know, that are within reasonable distance and so forth to try to reconnect the agricultural system, uh, healthy agricultural system, uh, to people's well-being in the cities. And I find that a very, uh, it's a fun movement, it's a great movement, it's a necessary movement, and it's what's going to have to happen uh, if we're going to recover both uh, systems, you know, our social systems and our agricultural systems. I'm just wondering what percentage of our four trillion dollar uh, spend on healthcare would it take to get people healthy food? Because it seems like it would be just a small percentage of that four trillion to to get people healthy food, which would solve a lot of the problems with uh, people's uh, uh, from a health standpoint. Yeah, and uh, who's getting that food? Who's getting that money? <laughs> pharmaceuticals right. yeah i mean they don't make money from health they make money from sickness they certainly do and and of course there are no uh, very few studies on the the benefits of eating healthy food there's lots of studies on how to you know with the value of their drugs but uh not very many studies on what it would uh what would it what would the positive effects be of eating a healthy diet just like you did in your personal uh, situation to get healthy from, from asthma? 
Exactly. And the thing is, I mean, the ideal pharmaceutical drug is something you have to take every day for the rest of your life, right? I mean, that's ideal. Statins, great idea. Okay, let's take it every day, right? Instead of going back, you know, upstream and saying, well, what's causing those heart problems? You know, look at what are, what are you eating and what's your genetics for sure? You know, what's your predilections, you know, for uh, genetically, but but actually it's downstream, which is, you know, basically palliative, not curative. And uh, that's our industry. And it controls, just like Big Ag controls the USDA, the CDC and the FDA is controlled by Big Pharma. Well, I, I certainly had a situation myself where I, my cholesterol had gone up a bit and the doctor wanted to put me on statins. And I said, well, let me just try changing my diet and cut cut down on the red meat dramatically and cut down on eggs and things like this. And uh, lo and behold, he said, oh, wow, it's uh, your, your cholesterol went down. So it is within our power to do these things if we, if we change our diet. Absolutely. I mean, look at eating rice and drinking tea did not cure my asthma. It created the conditions whereby the asthma was not occurring. Okay. I mean, what healed me was a wide variety of healthy foods over time. But it's interesting when I went back to my doctors and said, wow, I don't have symptoms anymore. I'm not taking the drugs. You know, I, I'm eating this healthy diet. You know, uh, they said, well, that was probably a placebo effect. They didn't take it seriously at all. Yeah, unfortunately, as you said, most doctors are not trained in nutrition. They don't really understand it as well as they should. I always say that our human bodies are the most sophisticated pharmacological device uh, out there and are far more sophisticated than what the big pharma can create and, and far more effective. Oh, here's a, here's a quick factoid. There's 10,000 ingredients in a head of broccoli. There's 10,000 ingredients in a head of kale, in a bunch of kale, okay. There's only a 10% overlap. We're just discovering we have no idea what's in our food. <laughs> well, uh, everybody stay tuned. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Paul Hawken, noted environmentalist, entrepreneur, economist, author, activist, and we'll be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and, and I've got Paul Hawken on the program. Uh, Paul, we were talking about the food chain. I'm going to pivot a little bit uh, with you, and we'll talk about some other issues. I mean, you've got so much stuff that you've written about in uh, your most recent book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Um, you know, it sounds like a very, you know, a hopeful, you know, title certainly there. Um, tell us a little bit about the trajectory of the book and, and why you wrote it. I wrote it because I feel like the conversation about climate has focused almost entirely on carbon. Um, and I, I believe there's what I would call the carbon tunnel syndrome, you know, which is looking at carbon as this inert substance, you know, that is gotten, 
is problematic. You know, there's too much of it up there because of the combustion of fossil fuels and the way we've treated the environment. And somehow we've got to stop doing that and bring it back home. And if we do that, we get a hall pass to the next century, which is nonsense. We have to do that. There's no question about that, by the way. I mean, it's imperative that we do that. But it basically um, presumes uh, that the rest of the world will be there for us when we get there. And we have lost half of all biomass and life on the planet in the last 200 years. And the rate of loss is increasing right now at the highest level. And so it's almost as if we have a climate movement that sort of assumes the planet will be there, in fact, is destroying the planet. And even some of the climate solutions are destroying the planet. And destroying the planet by taking, extracting. I mean, the first principle of really reversing climate, uh, <clears throat> and it's not really reversing climate change because climate is always going to change. What we want to reverse is global warming, global heating. We want to reverse the uh, impact climate is having upon society. Uh, climates are, like I say, always going to be changing. They're supposed to. That's what climate does. <laughs> and so we don't want to fight that. What we want to do is understand how we've changed it because the climate or the atmosphere is simply responding to what we do here on Earth. No other reason. And so how do we change what we're doing here? And one of the principles of what we do has to be reciprocity, which is after hundreds and centuries of time where we've just been taking, 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 you know, from the forest, from people, from cultures, from oceans, from the land, from soil, from water, you know, we have to actually have reciprocity, which is you have to give more than we take. So regeneration is about how can we supply and, you know, human needs, you know, and all human needs in a way that creates more life instead of life, instead of taking life. And that we have an economic system that takes life in order to provide with human needs. Well, we don't argue about providing humans with their needs. Uh, that's not the question. The question is, how are we doing that? And that's why, again, regenerative agriculture, not to just you know, focus on that entirely, is, is an example where you restore the soil, you restore the health of the soil, pollinators, bird life, you know, uh, nutrition that comes out of the soil in terms of plants. Uh, and everybody's a winner. There's a winner all the way across. And so the question, and that's my question too, but for all of us is how can we build our homes? How can we, you know, operate our cities? How can we, you know, our schools? How can we live here together as a civilization in such a way that as on a step-by-step -step basis, we are creating more life instead of less? And that's really what regeneration is about. Let me ask you about, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that some of the climate solutions are destroying the planet. Uh, one of the things that is talked about a lot is the amount of mining that has to be done for, say, electric car batteries. Um, do you think it's still a net benefit to uh, our society, to the planet, to, to create uh, millions, if not billions, of electric cars um, with, with that mining? You've raised a really important point, a really important question. And there's an underlying assumption that if we swap out our technology and how we build our buildings and how we drive, how our mobility, how we make our cars with systems that are 
arguably more renewable and less impactful, that we're good to go. And actually, the underlying assumption there is that capitalism can cure consumption. In other words, that we can consume just as much as we are right now and even more so uh, as we move on. And that, that that's going to work, and it's not. And so going back to mining specifically, uh, there we can't do what you spoke to. No, we cannot continue to mine and to build out a so-called you know sustainable society and we certainly don't want to mine the oceans which is now what they're talking about in order to you know to uh, gather those uh, important minerals that are needed uh, for a renewable society and i think that the again i at the other hand i mean not to just be you know a complainer sound like i'm complaining there is some extraordinary stuff going on in terms of batteries and reimagining what a battery is, how it works, what it's made of, that don't require uh, these minerals, uh, whether they be uh, trace minerals or rare minerals or just plain minerals like, you know, that are being mined from Chile, the lithium in Chile and others in the Congo. Um, and so my hope is that these breakthroughs will happen sooner instead of later. Uh, there's even uh, a very famed scientist in the University of Maryland, Ling Hing Bu, uh, uh, who, excuse me, Ling Bing Hu, uh, who is inventing a wooden battery that works. And he has the chops to do it and has invented things that really do work uh, in other areas. And so, and that's being funded by the Department of Energy. So. Your question is really well placed, actually, which is no, we cannot just assume that, you know, we can continue to take, extract, and harm the world uh, for a sustainable society. Oh. Well, it seems as though, given the amount of um, build out of technology and infrastructure to whether we go a more sustainable battery or, or whatever the route may be is going to take a tremendous amount of shifting of our um, industrial base. Um, and it wouldn't just consuming less be a far more elegant solution to this problem than just, you know, trying to live at the same or greater rate of consumption than we've lived uh, heretofore. Absolutely. And I, I think it's not, it's like the, oh gosh, it's like the, the subject that nobody wants to attend to. Business doesn't want to talk about it, you know, and politicians don't want to talk about it. And people actually don't want to even think about it because most people don't have enough, or at least they think they don't have enough. And in many cases, they do not. And so we actually have to think about this in a way that how do we really support those people who wake up every morning with a current existential threat. They're worried about food, they're worried about food security, they're worried about security for their children, about education, about clothing, about warmth, about housing, about jobs that give them dignity and a living wage. That's most of the people on earth right now. And what's so interesting about the climate solutions that are in drawdown and regeneration is you look at them from a different point of view. What you find, in fact, is that uh, they create a better life for virtually everybody on the planet, but they don't, not based on extraction and consumption and, you know, a way of living here that actually is destroying our host. You know, we're the only species, there's 8.7 million 
excuse me, billion species on Earth. And we're the only one that eats its host and destroys its habitat. <laughs> so so uh, we, there's room to maneuver here to think about living here in such a way that doesn't do that. Well, I love uh, there's an Eisenhower quote in in your book uh, back in 1953. Eisenhower was talking about the cost of a, a bomber to society and and how many hospitals mm. and roads and and uh, homes could be created for the price of that that bomber, and and now that has increased, you know, like ten or fifty fold with the bombers that we currently have, and so maybe just a different way to to look at that that we have the economic means to solve many of our problems if we reallocated some of our resources for. Um, problems that uh, are not military ones. Absolutely, and one of the ways we could do that is, and work with every other country in the world, why can't we have a cabinet post that's called the Department of Peace? In other words, you know, why not? I mean, okay, we'll have a Department of War too, in case, but can we actually look at the real cure? War is not a cure. Uh, it seems like a great idea to me. You're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Paul Hawken on the program, and uh, we'll be back in just one minute to talk to Paul about uh, a host of issues. You're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Paul Hawken, author of Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And I just read recently that Bill Gates was essentially saying that the trillion trees idea is uh, more or less silly and not particularly helpful. What's your take on that one? I have mixed feelings about it. I agree with him, by the way, on the trillion trees. Uh, so not about that. Um, his idea, his, his point is well taken. Trillion trees where and which trees? Uh, what the world needs is forests, not more, you know, more forests for sure, but on whose land, where will they be placed and, uh, and how will they be planted and to who, who benefits from this and so forth. What we overlook is that there's five mega forests, uh, Matt, in the world, the Amazon, the Congo, the boreal, uh, both the taiga on the Russian side and the boreal on, on our side, and then there's uh, Indonesia and there's Borneo. And if we protect those forests uh, the way they are right now, it's 40 times more effective than the trillion tree movement and seven times uh, less costly. <laughs> and so there is this sort of very, very male-oriented thing of like, you know, we're over the top, we're going to save the earth, you know, okay. Well, let's do it, but let's use our brains. Let's do the math, you know, instead of just being sort of, you know, a sort of colonial hero, you know. And the people in the South, the global South, are appalled by that idea because they're saying, you're talking about our land for your trees to save your ass up in the north when you're the one who is emitting most of the carbon, you know. So there's a real thing, a d d dissonance there. Now, on the other hand, what Bill Gates says, he he thinks that director capture is a solution. Well, director capture is basically these giant plants that suck in 
literally suck in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, liquefy it, and then pump it into geological formations or in depleted oil formations. And there is one being built right now by Occidental Petroleum in Hector County, Texas, and it'll cost a billion dollars. It'll cost $300 million a year to operate, right? It will uh, capture uh, 500,000 tons of CO2, okay? And if you do the math, that means that it will sequester or capture 360 seconds of global emissions. And that's for $300 million a year and a billion dollars. And oh gosh, if there are so much better ways to spend that money. And so Bill Gates being a techno-optimist, you know, is into that when in fact there are in the megaforest, it's just one example, I can give others and so forth, where human beings can be so much more effective uh, in uh, addressing the uh, issues and the climate uh, uh, crisis that's at hand. Well, one of the things that you said was kind of the, uh, the male-oriented approach to solving problems. And, and I noticed that in uh, your book, you had referenced that Stephen Mitchell, and I believe it's a Stephen Mitchell who is a translator of the Tao Te Ching that I really like, which is the Tao is, is not about forcing and uh, more about allowing. And, uh, you know, we'd be far better served by a less man you know, changing nature philosophy and uh, curious as to, uh, you know, Stephen Mitchell's input into this process or your connection to him. Yeah, he's a very good friend. <clears throat> I respect him very, very much. He actually wrote one of his books in a cottage on my property. Uh, but it's not just man, it's male. Let's be clear about this. You know, it's a gender thing. And men like to fix things and make it better. And that's all cool and it's a great quality uh, but when it comes to the planet the verb is wrong fix uh, you can't fix it it's fixed uh, what we're doing is harming and we have to stop the harm uh, as opposed to that earth creates the conditions for more life automatically uh, and we don't we do the opposite we do, we create the conditions for less life and so what we talking about is like, well, what does that mean? And I have the same questions as others, you know, which is, okay, what does that mean for this and that service and that, you know, for housing and for cities and for transport, et cetera, et cetera, the things that we rely upon. And I think those answers are forthcoming and extant and we need more of them. But I think we have to, you know, get our frame of mind has to, and I'll be gender specific, has to uh, be much more like a woman's frame of mind looking at uh, connection and, you know, than the male one, which is a little bit uh, over the top. <laughs> well, uh, you know, now that you're talking about uh, female connection or f more creative energy, I noticed that uh, Giselle Bundichen is, uh, you know, was listed in your book as a contributor or a supporter. Um, how is how is she connected to uh, to the movement? <clears throat> well, Giselle is a friend, and she's an extraordinary intelligent woman. People probably don't know that because she's so beautiful. They think, well, that's Giselle, you know, but actually, her beauty, her, her deeper beauty, is inside. And she grew up in a very wonderful place in Brazil, you know, very uh, full. Of, she was, you know, nature girl, 
she spent her time outside, you know, with uh, creatures and plants and so forth. And that has never left her. You know, that's been a part of her. So she was very, very helpful in promoting uh, uh, drawdown and also uh, drawdown in uh, Brazil. Uh, and uh, she remains a friend. And uh, but I mean. I, I just think that th that part of Giselle is in a lot of people, you know, who find themselves as professionals doing this and that and working in office towers or whatever, being photographed. And we really got to get back in touch with that part of us. And for those in the city who have never been able to be in nature and to experience it, I think one of the most important solutions in terms of reversing global warming is to get people away from their screens, away from digital information and awareness and have a direct awareness of where we live and how it works. And it's fascinating and magical and infinitely varied. And so uh, I don't think watching whatever you watch or whatever you read is sufficient unto the task at hand to actually develop that sense of wonder and awe and mystery. My next book is called Carbon, the Book of Life. I just finished it. And it is exactly about that, which is, oh my gosh, look where we live. It's so amazing and so fantastic, you know. Uh, and I think we're cut off from that sense of wonder. And, you know, you're going to protect what you love. And we have to create those... Uh, uh, conditions where we can fall in love with where we live with this beautiful, exquisite planet. It's only it's a Goldilocks planet. It's the only one we got. And and but when you get into it, as opposed to saying nature based or you know all those kind of terms, forget all that. And you get into that whether it's the soil, whether it's plants, gardens, pollinators. You know, I mean, insects. You know, bird, butterflies. You know, the ocean. It's a, when you take any part of that and start to really understand what's going on there, it's gobsmacking. It is extraordinary. And we all need an injection of that. Well, I um, amen to that one, too. I, I do a gratitude exercise every day, and it just kind of has me open my eyes to the beauty of the world around me and just the flowers, the trees. The whole thing is just uh, amazing. Yeah, it's unfortunate we don't have more time with you, but it's been uh, it's been great having you on the program. Thanks, Paul Hawkins. Go out and get a copy of uh, Paul's book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Also, take a look for his new book, Carbon, the Book of Life. Follow him on social media. Uh, and be the change we want to see in the world. Be kind, and if everybody would be so kind as to follow us on A Climate Change with Matt Mattern, go to aclimatechange.com. We've got about 125 episodes. Uh, follow us on Spotify, Apple, or iHeart, and pass these links along to... Uh, friends, family, business associates, and let's work together as a community to solve these problems. So, uh, Paul, again, thanks for all the work you've been doing over the last 60 years and would love to collaborate with you going forward. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, let me have one last quote from Jill Clapperton. It says, when you're standing on the ground, you're standing on the roof of another world. That's how beautiful this earth is. <laughs> well, I love that. So uh, what a way to close. Thank you again, Paul. Thank you.